My brothers and sisters, the Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Mark. In the course of his teaching, Jesus said to the crowds, Beware of the scribes who like to go around in long robes and accept greetings in the marketplaces, seats of honor in synagogues, and places of honor at banquets. They devour the houses of widows and as a pretext recite lengthy prayers. They will receive a very severe condemnation. He sat down opposite the treasury and observed how the crowd put money into the treasury. Many rich people put in large sums. A poor widow also came and put in two small coins worth a few cents. Calling his disciples to himself, he said to them, Amen, I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the other contributors to this treasury. For they have all contributed from their surplus wealth. But she, from her poverty, has contributed all she had, her whole livelihood. The Gospel of the Lord. Whether you're into poker or not, the popularity of that card game to the point that even those tournaments are broadcast as events on television has impacted our language in a specific way. And that's the widespread usage of the expression to be all in. In poker, it's a dramatic moment of confidence or recklessness or desperation when a player decides to bet all their chips on a single hand. You either win or lose everything in a flash. This expression made the leap from the game to now you hear people being all in seemingly everywhere. Politicians will say they're all in on one particular position or proposal to align themselves with activists who might agree with a particular cause. Sports fans will say they're all in for their team. They keep watching and going to games. They buy all the gear. They support them year after year, season after season, despite even a losing record. A tour guide in the Sistine Chapel in Rome described Michelangelo as he had set about to paint that masterpiece of the the famous ceiling, which required his spending years lying on his back, toiling as he wiped sweat and plaster from his eyes as being all in. The same was also said about a professional rock climber named Alex Holland, who when he decides to climb a rock without using any ropes or protective gear. While in poker, going all in is this thrilling win or lose definitive moment that's a spectacularly risky gamble. The way it's kind of used now runs the spectrum. People most often use it to make a a bold declaration about the importance of what they're saying that they're doing. But do we always mean what we say? There's more than a couple politicians who've assured their constituents that they're all in on an issue that proved otherwise and didn't necessarily lose their position in the subsequent election. 
at least a couple of all those all-in Giant fans have kind of stopped watching games this season. But they'll reemerge if they ever make it to the Super Bowl again. That's one reason that people tend to treat this notion of being all-in as just an expression, as an exaggeration to use for dramatic effect. Yet, it's hard to question the commitment of someone like Michelangelo, whose works hundreds of years later still inspire us all. Or the, depending upon your perspective, the daring and insane rock climber with his death-defying climbs seems to indicate pretty clearly that he's all in. What are the things you're all in for? The priorities in your life. The things that you're living for. That you're willing to die for. Those are quite heady and heavy questions, but today's scriptures where we encounter these two widows pretty squarely forces that question right in front of us. In the first reading from the Old Testament, the prophet Elijah encounters this widow asking her for something to eat. And she responds that she's down to her last morsels of food. She's going to cook it for herself and for her son almost as a, a final meal. They're that poor and vulnerable. And the prophet says to her, to go do what you're planning, but cook for him first. With the promise that if she does, the Lord God will see to it that the jar of flour shall not go empty, nor the jug of oil run dry. The widow in this gospel is even more bold. Seemingly no one notices her. St. Mark, the gospel writer, doesn't catch her name. No one in the temple that day are impressed by this pittance that she's offering. These two coins are worth a few cents. They're not going to make or break any capital campaign or keep the candles burning. What compels them to go all in, to put their very lives on the line? In a word, love. Both women were responding in love to God. In their material poverty, they were free of the distractions and the temptations of the world which might cause them to maniacally calculate and speculate on how much they could or should give to the Lord God. They could sense with every beat of their hearts the very presence and action of the God who had created them and sustained them. They had determined that that breath of life that they had was ultimately the greatest gift they had received, the most precious thing that they possessed, and the only thing that ultimately mattered. And in an act of pure selflessness, they go all in, with their very lives hanging in the balance. The first widow, her gamble paid off pretty nicely with what we read in Scripture, was at least a year of a bottomless supply of flour and oil. The second widow, we don't know what happened as she gives these last few cents that may have enabled her to survive a few days here on earth. But what makes it even more bold and courageous, she's giving them to God as an act of praise. She's accepted this reality that this might be the last act she will do on this earth and is committing her soul to him. Too many would would see these two women as being reckless and foolish to do what they did because they don't understand what love really means. 
And over the last 22 years of being a priest, that's a, a painful reality I've seen over and over again. So many people have never experienced true love, so they don't know how to offer it themselves. A guy hooks up with a girl for a night and they whisper, I love you. That's not love. A parent or a spouse makes outrageous, guilt-ridden demands and says, if you love me, you will do this. And that's not love either. And there are countless stories or examples of destructive or manipulative behavior that, that people have been told or led to believe is loving. And it's shockingly sad. And for those who've gone through such experiences, <clears throat> then these two widows do seem foolish and reckless. Those types of hurts leave people wounded and listening to a world that says the only thing to go all in on is yourself. And for those who've gone through that or been led to believe that, I'm sorry for that pain that's caused, but it's important to recognize those things as distortions of what true love is. Because the reality is you can't read the Gospels, you can't read the Scriptures, and not walk away with an overwhelming, earth-shattering revelation. And that's this, that Jesus Christ loves us with this foolish, reckless love. God is all in on you and me. The creator of the universe who loved you and me into existence, he keeps loving us by giving us his son Jesus and telling us we're to follow him and his example which is a life of complete self-emptying, giving up his life, giving up everything for you and for me. And when that registers, when that clicks, the only response is to go all in on him, to love him the same way he does, which the world still calls foolish and reckless, but that the Lord sees as selfless and sacrificial. That's why the, even though no one knows her name and those in the temple are probably unimpressed by this poor widow and her act, the only thing that matters is that Jesus does. He sees her. He notices her. He's touched and moved because he sees she's acting with that same selfless, sacrificial love that he loves us. He sees she gets it, that she's been changed by the God who has foolishly, recklessly loved her, and she loves him like that, by giving all she has left to him, knowing he won't abandon her or let her faith to be shown to be foolish or reckless. Nor will he let that be done to us. It's interesting, <clears throat> a few weeks ago, I was getting a haircut, and my barber, this guy who's in his mid-30s, who's been... Catholic his whole life, who I've been going to for about four or five years now, just talking about how he was an altar server when he was growing up, and that for the longest time he thought being a priest was like that, just something that a man volunteered to do on a Sunday. I kind of laughed. I said, well, I guess in one way you could say that we do. And he said, no, but <clears throat> I didn't realize that after Mass, I just went home. I thought priests did the same thing. I didn't know that that was like your job. And I was even more shocked when I learned that you couldn't have kids or get married. And it really struck me on a whole lot of levels. Most obviously, though, is that we've probably not done a really good job of explaining what priesthood is, or even more importantly, articulating the beauty of priesthood 
that it's not a job. That's not something I just volunteered to do to be something nice to help people. Or why is it that priests can't get married? Which I suppose after years of horrific scandals in the news involving priests, and even some examples that aren't criminal, but where people have encountered priests that maybe are joyless or angry or are conflicted themselves. I may have kind of shied away from even talking about it. But in that process, we've allowed this narrative that being celibate is is cruel and unusual punishment. And these talking points that celibacy is demanded out of a desire for control or some weird or distorted thing that needs to be abandoned to take hold. Granted, when I made the promise to remain celibate as a 24-year-old man back in 1998, I didn't know how challenging it would be. I mean, I knew the sacrifices I was being asked to make. That wasn't like a surprise. And I had, yeah, an idea that it's going to be difficult. But no, I didn't know the full extent of how hard that would be. The temptations that might come. I knew God would not keep me in a bubble to protect that from happening, nor make me some lifeless fish without the desires of a heart. Thank God for that. But yeah, it's not always easy. And sure, my mind can wander sometimes, imagine what my life would have looked like having a wife, having children of my own. But I love being a priest. And I could say I've grown to love being celibate because it's a way that I'm being asked to say to the world that I'm all in on Jesus and his call in my life. It reminds me in a uniquely personal way that I can't do any of this without Jesus being front and center. And the minute he's not, and I can sadly attest to this from personal experience, then it becomes painful. It's almost like you're led to a buffet with endless options of despair and discouragement and, yes, temptations. But when I let him meet me in this poverty of mine, that's where he fills me with true joy and love. I can't articulate the joy that comes into my heart celebrating the holy sacrifice of the Mass or absolving someone's sins in confession or any of those sacramental moments where Jesus uses me to express here and now to each of you what he's saying in this gospel to that widow that he sees and he notices and he loves you and that he's willing to lay down his life for you. That is in part made real by my celibacy. And the longer I've been living this life, the more I see how it's similar to all the difficulties that married couples face. That husbands and wives have similar challenges. That they make sacrifices that they knew would be difficult but could never have imagined the full extent of them on their wedding days. How temptations would come. How there are desires and wonderings, what if, that could distract them. But that they too say to the world that they're all in with Jesus as well. And they realize that they could never remain joyful about their lives or, or faithful to their vows without Jesus being front and center in their lives. What are the priorities in your life? The things you're living for that you're willing to die for. Jesus promises us that if we make it him, we will have him, and that's truly the only thing we need. 
And we will become part of that great band of witnesses who have transformed this world with his very presence in every time and place since. And that's not a gamble. That's an act of faith that he promises is worth our going all in.